0: So special counsel Jack Smith has 10 business days left if he wants to beat Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis to an indictment. We've we've talked a little bit about that. D.A. Willis has indicated that at some point between July 31st and August 18th, she may bring charges against Donald Trump for his attempts to overturn the results of the 2020 election in Georgia. And Mr. Smith whose federal indictment could overlap significantly with D.A. Willis' state-level indictment, well, he likely wants his federal case to go first. At least one of the two grand juries D.A. Willis has impaneled down in Fulton County has already started its work as of this week, and either one of those grand juries could be asked to indict Trump. But while we're waiting for potential charging decisions here, it turns out that we should still be keeping our eyes on Florida. And not just Mar-a-Lago. The New York Times is reporting tonight that prosecutors have asked questions about boxes of documents being moved not only at Mar-a-Lago, but also at other Trump-owned properties in Florida, including the Trump National Doral Golf Club, which is near Miami, and the Trump National Golf Club in Jupiter, also in Florida. That is according to a person familiar with the matter. That would seem to be some real news here as far as the special counsel's classified documents investigation is concerned. It means that it might not just be the storage rooms and the bathrooms and the ballrooms at Mar-a-Lago with all the boxes of wrongfully retained government documents. There might be more stuff squirreled away at Doral and Jupiter, or at least prosecutors are asking about that. Which is wow. Jack Smith and his team are on this. Now, we had an inkling that there might be more to the special counsel's probe down in Florida because late last month, The New York Times also again reported that Jack Smith's federal grand jury in Miami was still investigating. That was three weeks after Trump had already been indicted on 37 federal criminal counts for his alleged mishandling of classified documents. Three weeks after that indictment, the Times reported that not only was that grand jury still investigating, but they had issued multiple subpoenas to a handful of people connected to the inquiry. And then just yesterday, in a legal filing about the existing Mar-a-Lago charges, Smith's team wrote explicitly that they had interviewed witnesses as recently as June 23rd, which was by my watch last month just a few weeks after they filed the first indictment against Trump and his co-conspirator, Walt Nauda. So what about the classified documents case is Jack Smith still investigating? And who might be at risk of being charged now or charged again? As you contemplate that, remember this reporting we got late last month from The Independent. The Independent reported that Jack Smith's team has made preparations to bring what is known as a superseding indictment or a second set of charges against an already indicted defendant. Essentially, that Smith has made preparations to bring even more charges against Donald Trump in the state of Florida. So it is now a live question as to whether Trump's golf clubs at Doral and Jupiter, whether those places figure into any of that, whether what went down at those clubs might be part of a superseding indictment. Joining me now is Lisa Rubin, MSNBC legal analyst and our show's secret weapon. Not that secret anymore because it's so obvious how brilliant you are when it comes to understanding all the Trump legal news. Lisa, my eyes popped out of my head when I read the words golf clubs. Doral and Jupiter. Am I wrong to think that this is a
1: significant new reporting? No, not at all. My eyes did the same. We were not together when we, <laughs> we were digesting this I feel safer news. in my assessment now. But you know, one of the things, Alex, that I think is so interesting about this are Doral and Jupiter are not places that Trump is known to have residences. So when the Department of Justice had earlier said to Trump's lawyers, we think you're still hiding some documents from us you need to do more complete searches those searches were eventually done But they were done of residences. They were done of Trump Tower. They were done at Bedminster. Doral is not a place we understand as a place President Trump spends a lot of nights. He did, however, according to news reports, sleep there the night before his Miami arraignment. Wow. Jupiter, on the other hand, is about 20 miles from Palm Beach. It's where his son, Donald Trump Jr., now lives. And what I think might be happening here is they are both easy places to get to from Palm Beach, a short drive. So if you were going to want to move certain documents around, not only would you move them within the residence, you'd move them to places outside nearby. your universe of residences, right? In the indictment, we we heard, we
0: it is written in black and white, that there were some documents moved to Bedminster by Walt Nauda. And we know, of course, of the tape of Trump waving around purported classified documents that's at Bedminster. And the open question has been, Is the DOJ going to charge in Bedminster? Is Bedminster the next place where we're going to see an indictment? Is that what the superseding indictment might be about? Could is it in the world of possibility that the superseding indictment
1: actually could be something down in Florida at Doral or Jupiter? It could be. It could also be lies in testimony or interviews that people gave within Florida about events far outside Florida. Mm. So imagine, if you will, that in interviews or again, grand jury testimony, folks said, no, I never moved a box from Mar-a-Lago to Doral. No, I had nothing to do with the movement of boxes to Jupiter. No, I hadn't, I had no reason to believe boxes were moved to Bedminster. All of those things, if DOJ can prove otherwise, could be the basis of false statement charges. There's already one false statement charge in the existing indictment against Walt Nauda. There could be more to come. Um, the other reason I, I want to talk about Doral is
0: because if you are a golf fan, <laughs> then you know that the, uh, the Saudi golf organization Live Golf is hosting big tournaments at Doral. And I believe that one of these uh, Doral tournaments from Live Golf, the Saudi-backed professional golf venture, took place in the fall of 2022. Which is in and around the time frame that Trump is that Mar-a-Lago is being searched, documents are being moved. Am I wrong to be curious about? I, we know also. Sorry, key point here: um, the New York Times reported earlier this year that one of the previously unreported subpoenas to the Trump Organization sought records pertaining to Mr. Trump's dealings with a Saudi-backed professional golf venture known as Live Golf, which is holding tournaments at some of Mr. Golf's, Trump's golf resorts. So. Prosecutors are interested in the relationship between Trump and the Saudi-backed golf organization. There may be documents at Doral, and the Saudi-backed golf organization is having events at Doral.
1: I'm connecting dots. Should I not be? It's not clear, I think, at this point. One thing that I think is clear, though— is that the president's properties are historically insecure. Mm -hmm. We know from history that Mar-a-Lago has been infiltrated by lots of people, everyone from normal club members to folks just randomly having dinner to folks who have been caught on the property with no business there at all. Certainly, if classified documents are hanging out at a property where they are hosting a public golf tournament, let alone one that's backed by the Saudi Public investment fund. Yeah. That's yet another. That would be indicator. a red flag. Correct. That would be
0: something you'd want to follow up on. Okay, fair enough. The <laughs> we had this breaking news happen like literally an hour and a half ago. The other breaking news today was the reporting initially in AB, from ABC, which was first to report that the DOJ sent a target letter to a Trump staffer down at Mar-a-Lago about his handling of security footage down at the beach club. Can you talk to me about what a target letter? signifies and what conclusions you're drawing from
1: this target letter is as close to a warning or indicator as it gets before an indictment that your client is in fact very much within the crosshairs of DOJ and is likely to be indicted. It usually goes to the person's counsel. It also serves as a warning. Hey, if you've got a target letter, you can voluntarily come in, but we're letting you know that you are a target so that if we make an invitation to you, you don't come in and give self-incriminating testimony, right? That's really one of the purposes of sending the target letter. I think we now know that this person who's unnamed in the ABC reports but is represented by Walt Nauta's counsel, Stanley Woodward, is a person who is likely to be indicted. And that makes sense for this reason. When the Department of Justice does additional interviews after an indictment, it can't be in support of the existing charges. Mm. That's a big no-no. It has to be in support of either superseding charges or another indictment. Ah. So to the extent that the department is saying yesterday, hey, Trump and Nauta, we're about to turn over to you transcripts of interviews that we've conducted between mid-May and mid-June, that's in service of something larger than the indictment that we already know about. Interesting. I am. I personally, I mean, I did not realize. I, I as I've
0: said many times, I did not go to law school, but I. It did not occur to me that Jack Smith. And we, we knew that he was still investigating. We knew they were still subpoenaing people, but the fact that he is still looking at, focused on the sort of w- wheels in the machine, the cogs in the machine, the lower level staffers who were party to allegedly Trump's plot to hide these classified documents is interesting to me and a testament to the special counsel's tenacity in all this, given the fact that they've already indicted the president yeah. and his co-conspirator, Walt Nauda, and they got a big January 6th indictment that may be coming down the pike in, oh, the next 10 business days. Do, yeah. do, do you find that evidence of anything remarkably aggressive in the DOJ's wheelhouse?
1: I think it's different than the way that DOJ typically conducts business. Oftentimes, the DOJ will either indict or seek a plea deal first against lower-level offenders in an attempt to flip those people, and then they'll bring charges against the kingpin. Here, DOJ seems to be adopting an opposite approach. We're going to indict Trump and only one other person, and we are almost going to open our kimono and show you through this very detailed speaking indictment all the things we know. We're going to show you what we know from people's texts. We're going to show you what we know from surveillance footage. We're going to show you what we know from testimony. It's really an impressive compendium of their investigation. Then they go out and send things like this target letter that indicates to someone there's something for me to be scared about. Yeah. Now is the opportunity for me to flip. That also might be an indication of how they're going to go about their January 6th investigation. Well, that was my
0: next question is, does that give you a sense of the roadmap that they go for Trump? For, they're actually starting the top of the pyramid and then working their way down. Because we know that the special counsel's office has been talking to secretary of state, secretaries of state across the country. That was breaking news this morning. Uh Do you think that they're going to be pursuing their targets in the same way, which is to say Donald Trump in the next 10 days, but then the investigation into January 6th continues with potential indictments through the fall?
1: You know, I won't be as confident to say the next 10 days, but I do think that the way that they've gone about this could be a signal of what they're going to do when we do see a January 6th indictment. And I am increasingly confident that we will see one, Alex. Okay.
0: I mean, our secret weapon, not our secret weapon, America's favorite weapon when it comes to not really weapon, just mind, brain trust. Thank you for your time, Lisa. Thanks Ruben. for having me. We're so lucky to have you. And there are even more big legal developments tonight, like Trump lawyers seeking a couple big swings at the Georgia prosecutor who may be about to charge him over his actions in 2020. Plus the reverberations from a controversial Supreme Court decision, the big new front that just opened up in the fight for equality. That's coming up.
2: Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console consoling. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Whoa, oh, my package is here.
1: Fast, reliable. Able to power tons of devices inside your home at once.
3: All systems go. You are clear for
1: takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet. Wi Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators. Now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed.
3: Today's news requires more facts more context and more analysis the world's never been harder to understand that's why it's never been more important to try msnbc understand more
0: Back in March, before a twice indicted former president had any criminal charges filed against him, Donald Trump tried to put an end to the investigation into his possible attempts to subvert the 2020 election down in Georgia. Trump's lawyers moved to disqualify Fulton County DA, Fonnie Willis. They argued to the Fulton County Superior Court that the special grand jury investigation was, quote, confusing, flawed, and at times blatantly unconstitutional. And since then, little has happened. For about three months, there hasn't been a ruling. And now we are just over two weeks away from the start of the time period that D.A. Willis laid out. Highlighted here are the days she could possibly file a criminal indictment against Donald Trump. And as a result, Trump's team is acting with, shall we say, greater urgency. Today, Trump's lawyers filed petitions in two Georgia courts, that same Fulton County Superior Court they filed a petition in last March, and the Georgia Supreme Court, which is the state's highest court. And the point of these petitions was to ask for the same thing again, to shut down Fonnie Willis's investigation. Team Trump argues that her probe was unconstitutional, and it causes, quote, injuries to Trump as he seeks his party's nomination for the presidency. Trump also wants to forbid the use of any evidence or testimony from Willis's investigation, arguing that many of the warrants that led to the testimony of over 75 witnesses were obtained illegally. His legal team wants to direct the quote quashal of the special purpose grand jury's report and bar the entirety of its contents. A quashal. And of course, Trump has asked the court for a second time to disqualify D.A. Fonnie Willis herself outright. Joining me now to hopefully answer many of these questions is someone with a lot of experience as a prosecutor in Georgia, former U.S. attorney for the Middle District of Georgia, Michael Moore. Michael, thanks for being here. Um, What's going on with with Judge McBurney? He's the judge that's overseeing this case. He got the first petition in March. Nothing, not much appears to have happened. Is, Is there any merit to the idea that he's somehow been sitting on this?
2: Well, I'm glad to be with you. I don't know that there's a lot of merit that he's just holding it. I think when you compare what he did during the time of the special purpose grand jury and how quickly he moved on issues relating to subpoenas and evidence that may come in and that type of thing, um, witness attendance, that, uh, it's a little bit unusual for him to sit on a motion, uh, for this long. Uh, and it may, it, it may give the Supreme Court a basis to, uh, direct him to rule so that they can actually have a pending Matter before, before them. Uh, you know, right now it's sort of a an imaginary case, if you will, because there's no charge, defendant. There's no indictment to go from. There's no evidentiary hearing that's happened in trial where a court has made some ruling that a defendant's asking to be reversed. Uh, it's simply a potential defendant coming in saying, "Hey, if you let this go forward, uh, it will it will cause me uh, harm." And so, it's an unusual posture for the Supreme Court to take these kind of cases up. Uh, There are some constitutional questions that they raise in their motion, and I think they're probably appropriately raised at least. But I really think what you're seeing is an effort to make a very clear and very thorough record uh, of proceedings in the courts below, because this case is going to wind its way through every appellate court uh, system between here and Washington, D.C., and so uh, that's that's really what I think the purpose of, of the motion is.
0: Do you think one of the reasons that the judge hasn't ruled on it is because it might be, I don't know, poppycock?
2: It, it, it very well could be, but that ought to be a pretty easy deny the motion, you know, as opposed, to, as opposed to letting something sit, and judges, you know, they don't like to let things linger, and they usually are pretty good about making sure that lawyers can com- comply with getting things timely done. So, uh, it, I, I think probably, you know, he's been told there's some indictments coming. He figures that's really going to be the start of the horse race. And so he just hadn't ruled yet. Uh, and, and again, I don't think that's going to serve as a basis for the Supreme court to do something like throw out this whole case, but I think it's one more thing that the the, the defendant's uh, defense counsel and defendant can raise uh, to to you know try to make some hay, raise some money from their supporters, uh, and and uh, you know continue to gin up their base as they're moving forward into what looks like a protracted uh, litigation in the criminal courts.
0: You know, the, well,
2: All around the country, by the way.
0: there is a the essence of Trump's political strategy is in this filing. He says that uh, his legal team says that Fannie Willis should be disqualified for one specific thing. And I'll read it from the filing uh, the <laughs> the district attorney was laboring under and an impermissible, an actual conflict of interest, hosting and headlining a fundraiser for the political opponent of one of her investigations targets that is fannie willis attending a fundraiser for a man named charlie bailey who a democrat who ran against one of the republican fake electors in the st- in the state of georgia they're arguing that that is disqualifying does that seem disqualifying to you <laughs>
2: It, it's not disqualified. And, and Judge McBurney kind of made short work of that when he said, look, I'm not going to let you deal with that particular uh, uh, target, if you will. We don't even have targets in the state system. But uh, with that individual, I'm not going you know, he, he's not going to be included in this process. And so that's the way the court dealt with that. That's that's not going to permeate this whole case. Uh, I, I do think you know if they want to raise questions about whether or not there have been public statements made, whether or not there's been a you know questions of a that, that may have affected a jury pool statements that have come out like that, then that, those are fine to raise if they want to raise them. And good defense lawyers are going to raise those kinds of objections and motions to get them on the record. So if if there is at some point a conviction, there'll be grounds to appeal. But um, that 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 issue uh, as as far as this this idea of what happened during the investigation of some of the Uh, purported vague electors is, uh, I I think that's probably water well under the bridge.
0: Can I ask you about the general kind of proclivities of the Georgia State Supreme Court? Because as you, I think, very rightly point out, this is going to make its way through the court system Mm -hmm. uh, between Georgia and Washington. But just in the state of Georgia, we know that there are nine Georgia uh, State Supreme Court justices. Eight of them were appointed by Republican governors. I mean, what is the likelihood that that state Supreme Court is sympathetic broadly to Trump's pleas as he continues to you know, petition the court for various rulings?
2: I think it's uh, unlikely that they're very sympathetic. And let me say, uh, I I know the justices and a lot of them are my friends. And so uh, I just don't believe that they're going to get a a great reception, Uh, not because I know anything uh, about leanings one way or or another. I just believe that these are serious people uh, occupying a position of trust uh, on the Supreme Court. And they're going to look at the case. They're going to look at the facts and they'll look at the law. Uh, and and make a decision based on that and not some fondness for one political candidate or or another. Um, And so if, if, if Trump's team has a hope of succeeding, then I think they've got to be serious about some of their filings they make and some of the objections that they make and and make those things that they think think have true uh, well-founded reasons uh, to, to, to raise some, some challenge. And again, I think we'll see these kind of motions down the road I think this is just sort of a shot that the the uh, defense team felt like they needed to take. and and you know, they're good lawyers, and i uh, you know, I'm not surprised that they did something like this to uh, protect their client's position. Um, but I, I don't think the Supreme Court is going to have the appetite yet uh, to take it up. Remember that this very well may be a case that moves into the federal court. I mean, we're talking about conduct and, and conduct meaning what we believe the district attorney may charge would have been conduct that Trump is alleged to have committed while he was a sitting president of the United States. And if you think about the enormity of that and what it means, it it hasn't happened before. And so um, this is going to be a case of first impression, both in the Supreme Court here and as it winds its way up. And there are some federal statutes that talk about cases that can be moved from a state court to a federal court. Uh, if somebody's uh, participating as a federal executive and in their office and that kind of thing. Uh, And I'm sure the defense team has looked at those motions. It'll make a decision on whether or not they want to make some type of motion to transfer it to the court. Mm. But nonetheless, it's going to wind its way through the federal court system because it's going to, I believe, ultimately go to the Supreme Court, which obviously is the highest federal court or or any court uh, in the land.
0: Well, a lot of novel legal things happening here, including the use of the word quashal, which I had not heard until today. (laughs) You're welcome, America. Michael Moore, former U.S. attorney for the Middle District of Georgia. Michael, it's always great to see you. Thanks for your expertise tonight.
2: Great to be with you, Alex. Thank you.
0: When we come back, what happens when Chris Christie meets Donald Trump in the octagon? Do you know what the octagon is? Stay tuned, Chris Christie has some interesting things to say. Plus, Clarence Thomas did even more damage than you might have imagined when he helped End Row. And that is just ahead. When the Supreme Court ended the constitutional right to an abortion last year, the headlines were stark. States were now free to ban abortion, and the whole country was about to undergo a seismic shift in terms of basic freedoms. But there were additional headlines around that time that were worth paying attention to because the fallout from that Supreme Court decision did not stop with abortion. Here's the NBC News headline from that time Justice Clarence Thomas wants the Supreme Court to overturn landmark rulings that legalize contraception and same-sex marriage. In his concurring opinion, in which he voted to strike down Roe, Justice Thomas also argued that the court should not stop there. He wrote, In future cases, we should reconsider all of the court's substantive due process precedents, including including the case that legalized gay marriage. Because any such due process decision is demonstrably erroneous, and we have a duty to correct the error established in that precedent. Justice Thomas was essentially arguing in that Supreme Court decision that legalized gay marriage was wrongly decided and encouraged someone to bring a new legal challenge to the court, one that would give the court the opportunity to correct the perceived error and allow states to dismantle marriage equality. And it did not take long for someone to start going down that road. Late last month, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of a Colorado web designer who had refused to design wedding websites for couples who are gay. Now, even though the law requires her and her business to serve everyone equally, she argued that the law was forcing her to advance a message she doesn't believe in. And the conservatives on the Supreme Court agreed with her. They ruled that this woman had the right to discriminate against same-sex couples solely based on their sexual orientation. And already, this case, the one with the web designer, is paving the way for others to challenge not just the right for gay couples to hire a web designer, but exactly what Clarence Thomas encouraged last year, to challenge whether gay couples can get married at all. In 2019, a justice of the peace from Waco in Texas was given a public warning after she refused to perform gay marriages. After receiving that warning, she sued the state panel that sanctioned her, saying they violated the free exercise of her religion. That case has been making its way through the courts ever since. And now, given the recent rulings from this conservative Supreme Court, this judge seems to have a stronger legal leg to stand on than she did when she first brought this case back in 2019. The Justice of the Peace has filed a new brief to try and bolster her case in which she specifically cites the most recent Supreme Court ruling about the Colorado web designer. In her brief, she argues that the same rules the court applied to this web designer should apply to her a justice of the peace. If the web designer is allowed to refuse web design service to the gay couples, then she too should be allowed to refuse gay marriages. And this justice of the peace is clearly speaking directly to her audience. She says she fully expects this case to go all the way to the Supreme Court of Texas. And we all know what court comes after that one. This is one to watch. Joining us now is Charles Coleman, former Brooklyn prosecutor and current civil rights attorney. Charles, thank you for making your debut on Alex Wagner tonight on this very distressing series of legal events. Um, First, your reaction to this uh, Justice of the Peace and her filing. She clearly sees an opportunity based on the ruling in Dobbs. Is she right to see an opportunity?
3: She's not right, but she's not surprising in this way. After that decision came out in 303 creative from the Supreme Court, I predicted that we would see a number of different challenges across jurisdictions because the way the ruling was issued was very, very technically hairy and nuanced. Mm -hmm. And as far as I'm concerned, reading that and making the comparison is apples to automobiles. (laughs) You're talking about someone who is a state employee She is a a government employee, so she is not a private employee. She's not a web designer. Correct. Like the web designer, that's number one that's important to understand. So the laws that govern there, there are very, very different. And then you're also talking about a First Amendment analysis in the 303 case versus a state law in Texas that you're trying to apply to basically expand that far beyond anything that the Supreme Court of the United States actually said. So in terms of the pathway that she has legally to get where she wants to go, 303 Creative does not apply. Those cases are not relevant in that way. In terms of principle, even that is misinterpreted in terms of what 303 Creative actually says. But, Alex, this is not going to be the last time we see yeah. this sort of challenge around that Supreme Court ruling.
0: Well, I mean, I and I, I totally agree with you, <laughs> if only because Clarence Thomas has said effectively, explicitly, Correct. hey, anybody want to dismantle gay marriage? Bring a case to me. That's Bring right. a case to me. And and there have been so many instances where it looked like the plaintiffs didn't have standing or you couldn't imagine that the Supreme Court would actually take this up. And And yet they do, because the Supreme Court, at least the conservatives on the court, seem dead set on furthering a specific agenda. Do you think there's a chance that Clarence Thomas looks at this case and says, maybe we can get it up here?
3: I don't necessarily know that it matters whether it's this case. The idea, as you've already said, and I'm glad you brought up the case, is that he's, he's made the invitation. He has fired the very loud warning shot to basically say, we're open to reconsidering these things. And so what that does for litigants across the country is that it emboldens them. These, sorts of decisions, Alex, occur over the course of a lot of time, as we saw with Dobbs and how Dobbs dismantled women's reproductive rights in America. They are subtle victories here and there, small cases that you basically stitch together to create a larger legal theory that you then find the perfect case to put before the court. You're not always going to win those cases. Look at affirmative action. That took so many losses before they finally got the win that they wanted. But with this invitation from Justice Thomas, what he has said is, hey, get them ready. We'll take a look and you may be able to start moving along in the strategy that you want.
0: Well, and it's reminiscent of what happened with abortion. And by the way, Jonathan Mitchell, the former Texas Solicitor General, he's the sort of architect of the 2021 Texas bounty hunter law that encouraged private citizens to sue people involved in abortions. That wasn't ultimately the case that the Supreme Court took up to dismantle Roe, but it was made, it was the, it was part of this groundswell, right. to your point, of anti-abortion, uh, cases that were sort of winding their way through the courts. He's also the guy that's involved in this gay marriage lawsuit down in Texas. And I guess to your earlier point, I mean, it, it is, he is one of those foot soldiers that helps sort of drum up the, 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 the field army, if you will, to get this thing up into the highest court
3: in the land. So you have this agenda that's set forth in large part by Christian nationalists, and they're pushing it, and this is the arena in which they have different people, the legal arena, the courts, that they're looking to enact certain laws and and, and enforce certain decisions by the court that are going to reinforce what it is that they're trying to do with their agenda. And he's taken every element from different aspects and tried to move it further and further and further. And my thoughts when the 303 creative ruling came down was— People are going to continue to push these boundaries. It just so happens that he's doing this in Texas, but this is going to happen throughout the country with respect to people seeing how far they can go with respect to denying services and opportunities to same-sex couples or anything else that they are going to claim is in conflict with their religious beliefs
0: well and wait till we see what happens in and around affirmative action and the after effects of that yikes charles coleman thank you for your time thank you for your time on this friday night appreciate it still to come this evening while most of the republican presidential hopefuls are afraid of being within the same zip code of a donald trump insult chris christie has decided to enter the octagon do you know what the octagon is stay tuned The first Republican presidential debate is less than six weeks away. Donald Trump remains at least 30 percentage points ahead of anyone else in the field. But most of the other candidates do not seem too eager to do all that much about it. Yesterday, a leaked strategy memo from Ron DeSantis' campaign explained how the governor intends to handle Donald Trump. Our campaign will make the contrast between Joe Biden and Ron DeSantis clear, but we won't avoid Trump's failings when asked. Our strategy? Question asked? Question answered, then on to how we beat Joe Biden. Question asked, question answered, like the spelling bee. Desantis's plan is to only criticize Donald Trump when specifically asked about Donald Trump and then to basically avoid the topic for the rest of, I don't know, the entire primary season. It certainly is one strategy, and yet it seems downright aggressive when you look at how everyone else has been handling this.
2: To win the nomination, you're going to knock out Donald Trump. How are you going to do that?
3: Well, everyone watching the show tonight can go to Votimscott.com learn more about who I am. Are you a better human being than Donald Trump? I think we all have intrinsic value in the eyes of God. You've
1: got some people who are mad that I don't love Trump 90 percent you know, 100 percent of the time. I don't love my husband 100 percent of the time.
2: What do you make of uh, your former running mate's jabs at the governor of this state? I have some familiarity with my former running mate's jabs. Um, i served alongside him for four years, and uh, uh, he's entitled to his opinion for my part.
0: And then there is the strategy of former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie.
4: If you and Trump got in the ring, he loves his UFC and stuff like that, right? If you got in the octagon, you and him,
3: who'd win? Come on. Guy's 78 years old. I'd kick his ass.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Chris Christie, for the record is 60 years old. Joining us now is Mark Leibovich, staff writer for The Atlantic and the author of Thank You for Your Servitude, Donald Trump's Washington and the Price of Submission. Mark, no better person to talk to about what's happening here. I know that you remember, as I do, the pudding fingers ad that Donald Trump took out against Ron DeSantis, which basically suggests that the governor is a gross person who eats pudding with his fingers. Trump has no problem attacking people personally and viscerally. Why is Chris Christie the only person in this race who seems to have a strategy to go after Donald Trump?
4: Well, I mean, Chris Christie doesn't have much else to lose. I mean, I do think it's interesting that, um, you know, Chris Christie is now sort of the latest to kind of tout his own physical prowess and conditioning and would like to get in the ring with Donald Trump. I think what he was probably trying to do is, um, you know, trigger Trump into responding to him and maybe making a fat joke and they can go back and forth and do this. I mean, it just seems kind of like a food fight at this point to sort of bring this back to the pudding imagery. Um, And look, I mean, it, it doesn't I mean, the math doesn't add up for people who expect that Donald Trump is just going to go away. I mean, Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, what have you. I mean, in DeSantis' case, you know, asked and answered. He's not taking a lot of questions even. So, um, whatever he's done has not moved the needle to this point. So, I, I think that if there's a plan B, they need, they need to go to it pretty quickly.
0: Well, I want to talk about DeSantis because this leaked memo that NBC News had the exclusive first reporting on um, also notes where the DeSantis team thinks Trump is vulnerable. And I will read the portion of that. Soft Trump voters and American first conservatives do not look kindly on Trump's record on guns, the deficit and spending transgenderism and his family's cozy relationship with the Saudi royal family. I mean, on its face, I sort of understand how the polling might reflect that. But all of those all of those topics seem so just distressingly beside the point when it comes to the voters and their relationship with Donald Trump. I mean, do you see merit in that assessment?
4: Yes, but only if Ron DeSantis actually talks about it. I mean, like, Donald Trump is absolutely vulnerable. I mean, he has a whole presidency that, that Democrats and Republicans, I think, could have a field they're running against, and any number of, you know, vulnerabilities that you could point to. But, I mean, DeSantis mentions, you know, the, the, Saudi royal family. I mean, has he mentioned that once? I mean, no, of course not. I mean, Trump. I mean, I think one thing that Trump is vulnerable on is his own record as president to conservatives. I mean, the whole idea that he delivered for them is is frankly kind of just not. It's disingenuous because one, he didn't build a wall, and, and Christie's really the only one who's brought that up. Um, infrastructure didn't get done until Joe Biden got into the office. Got into office, he didn't drain the swamp. Um, he didn't balance the budget. I mean, go down the list. So I mean but but again it's sort of a Proboten topic. It's like, oh, I disagree with Donald Trump on a number of things, but I'm going to focus on what I'm here for. And then, if you're going to take the Tim Scott route, say we all, you know, have virtue in God's eyes. So I'm not sure that's going to do it.
0: Well, I guess I, I, I think it's interesting that you think on the record that there is, um, that there are points to be mined, as it were, if you're an opponent of Donald Trump's, because what seems apparent to me from the outside is the, the emotional relationship between Trump and his supporters to the degree that they will deny that up is up and down is down. Right. Like you can tell voters he didn't do that much for the economy. And they will say, yes, he did. You know, they, you can tell voters well he did. Mexico didn't pay for the wall. And it, it's almost as if the record does not register that the, the emotional connection is so deep and so profound that nothing can break it. And I wonder if that's at the root of these Republicans not even bothering to try to go after Trump on the record.
4: I think so. I mean, clearly, they have a rea- reality distortion field that they are operating against. But if you keep talking sense to enough Trump voters, eventually something is going to get through. I mean, another part of the record that, that people rarely talk about is is just, frankly, his one less his one loss record on l- losing re-election to Joe Biden, uh, losing the Senate, losing the House, which is something that no incumbent president has done in 100 years. So, I mean, he has quite a record. And, you know, the Republican Party has lost quite a bit on his watch. So, look, the record record can can cut any number of ways, but it doesn't get you anywhere if you don't talk about it.
0: I I have to ask you, Mark, about the ways in which the, uh, what do we call, lower card candidates are trying to get Mm. into the first debate of the season. We know that they have to meet a certain polling number, but they also have to get 40,000 individual uh, donations. And at this point, the Doug Burghams of the race, the Viveks, Ramaswamis of the race are literally paying people off to vote for them. Doug Burgum offering $20 gift cards to people who donate a dollar to his campaign. Vivek Ramaswamy is offering a 10% commission to anyone who brings in donations. This level of desperation is unique, is it not?
4: It is. But can you imagine actually having a Doug Burgum um, gift card? I mean, what could you do with it? What could you buy with it? I mean, it's sort of a cool thought. I think it's a
0: Visa. I think it's a Visa cash card. I think, but I'm not sure. It's not like the bank of Doug Burgum.
4: OK, well, you know, if I had one, I, I could, you know, grab a burger on the way home. I mean, the, the idea here is, look, we have so much money. We we're so desperate. I mean, you might as well just sort of pay off voters. And if people are susceptible to that. Great. I mean, I guess watching presidential presidential candidates could be a good way to you know get gift cards at this point. But look, it, it just shows you how high or how low the bar is at this point.
0: Mark Leibovich, it's always good to see you, buddy. Thank you for your time on this Friday
4: night. Thanks, Alex. Have a good night.
0: Still to come this evening, whatever you may have heard about voter fraud in the 2020 presidential election, what voter fraud actually looks like and who is actually doing it is a whole different story. That is next. Okay, there were a lot of conspiracy theories around the 2020 election about widespread fraud favoring Democrats. 2,000 mules stuffing ballot boxes. Human mules, not like donkeys. Foreign actors using rigged Dominion voting machines to secretly flip votes to Biden. Democratic election workers pulling out secret suitcases full of ballots late at night. And while none of those things actually happened, a few rare instances of actual prosecutable voter fraud did occur, and lots of them had something in common. I'm going to let you guess what that was. For example, four residents of a Florida retirement community called The Villages pleaded guilty to felony charges of voter fraud, each admitting to casting more than one ballot in the 2020 election. And three of the four felons from that very Trump-friendly community were registered Republicans. The fourth was not affiliated with any party. Then there was the Pennsylvania man who cast an absentee ballot for Trump using a ballot meant for his mother, who had died before she could vote. There was the Republican Party official from Ohio who cast a ballot on behalf of his dead father. There was a Colorado man who pleaded guilty to voting for Trump using a ballot in the name of his wife, who had disappeared earlier that year and is presumed dead. He said he thought Trump could use the vote. There was the Nevada man whose claims that someone had cast a ballot in the name of his dead wife were relentlessly promoted by the state's Republican Party as proof of rampant voter fraud until the Nevada guy admitted that he was the one who actually did it. And now we have a new example from the state of Ohio. A registered Republican who has made campaign donations to Donald Trump is awaiting his fate after being tried for voter fraud for voting twice, twice, In 2020, the defendant allegedly voted early in-person in Ohio and then cast a second in-person ballot on Election Day in Florida, where he owns property. Then in 2022, he allegedly voted twice again. At a trial this week, the defendant, who pleaded not guilty, reportedly did not testify or provide any witnesses. But the Cleveland Plain dealer quotes his lawyer as saying, mistakes do happen. Accidents do happen. The judge who heard That case will rule on it next month and decide whether he joins the ranks of fellow members of the Election Integrity Party who committed voter fraud. That is our show for this week.